I don't care when they say they're going back to school. I'm not going back to school. I, I'm retired, for God's sake. I, oh, hi. It's uh, Pete Parmesano here on RLTP's Off-Road. Welcome back. And things are continuing just pretty much the same way they have been now for four months. And uh, so we're here for a little light entertainment and to talk to some people about what's going on in their world during the COVID-19 quarantine and gradual opening and phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. I, I think there has to be a phase five, clearly, because not everything's open yet. And uh, I know the, the people at my gym are very sad and I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm very, very sad not to be able to go back to the gym. <sighs> So, we've got a really nice program lined up for you this time. We've got uh, two very important cultural institutions and two very important uh, theatrical institutions to talk to today. From the theatrical world, we've got Maria Ta from Ujima. And from the Kavanoki, we have Lorraine O'Donnell. And from the cultural institutions, the Olmsted Parks, Stephanie Crockett. They have so much to do. Do I cannot believe everything that they're in charge of. Olmstead Conservancy, that's Stephanie Crockett. And finally, from one of the most well-respected arts organizations in Western New York and throughout the world, Ed Cardoni from Hall Walls. And boy, what a great interview he is. But starting us off is Maria Ta from Ujima. So take off your mask, take off your well, whatever, Sit back with a nice cold brew or lemonade or whatever and enjoy this episode of our LTP's Off-Road with Pete Pomisano. How are you? It's lovely to meet you. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, we're just kind of getting back into the swing of things, being back in the office again. So. Yeah. Well, before we start, of course, I, I have to mention my dear friend, Lorna, and um, my deepest, deepest condolences to everybody there at, at Ujima and uh, and everybody in her. Mm -hmm. I feel like everybody, everybody who worked with her was in her family, you know, because that's the way she treated. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's how it's been for a lot of us for the last few months as we went through this together. It, it didn't really feel like work. It was a lot more familial based being around people whom she loved, who loved her. Um, so we were really surrounded by the community that Lorna helped create. And that was a, a beautiful experience for me. Yeah. What was it? 40, 41 years or something like, like that was the, Correct. how long, how long since she founded Ujima? Mm -hmm. 41 years. It's just an amazing legacy that will live on forever right uh, exactly. i hope i hope anyway mm -hmm. well how long how long have you been at the helm there and and are you officially what is your official title now my official title still remains the same um i'm still the program director i've been at ujima for coming up to three years so not very long um but we recently changed to a flatter hierarchy where the executive director position has changed into a, a triad of three directors uh so it's the program director the managing director the the, the artistic director uh so we're just three captains at the helm so i've just remained being one of those captains oh a flat hire mm -hmm. okay i i had not heard that that term before but uh, 
I certainly understand the concept of it. Mm -hmm. And so, well, maybe you can just tell us briefly what, what's been going on aside from uh, dear Lorna's health and so on, but what's been going on with Ujima? I know last year you moved into the new space on Plymouth and you've had some very successful productions there. Were you in production when the shutdown occurred? We were. We were about a month out before we opened our next show, which was going to be Gospel at Colonus. So we had to halt rehearsals in March, um, but the plan is that our next production, whenever that is going to be, will be the Gospel at Colonus, since that was the last show uh, that Lorna was directing. Mm -hmm. To honor her, we want to make sure that that's the very next show that the company puts on. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Who else is in your little triumvirate there? Uh, so Margaret Smith just came on as our managing director. Um, and obviously, internally, we are working on the process of what it looks like to find a, a new artistic director. Um, but that's a long-term process that we're not really worrying about right now. So as of right now, it's myself and Margaret Smith who are uh, keeping the, the boat afloat. Mm -hmm. And when you shut down, I assume you had to leave the Plymouth Avenue site. Mm -hmm. And did you continue in any way to have to maintain that site? Was there anything that had to be done or could you just leave? close the doors and just walk away for a while. So we're pretty lucky. Uh, we're in a shared space. Uh, at School 77, we have Push Buffalo here as well as Peace of the City um, as tenants. On the commercial side of it, we also have the residents that live in the building. But most of the facility management is under Push, so we really just had to make sure that our spaces within the building uh, were closed and locked up. Bob Ball, who is uh, sort of our facility facilities manager uh, would often come in just to make sure things are, are running okay, that our systems are okay. But other than that, it's been pretty low maintenance while we're in the downtown. So did you, have you been conducting meetings? Have you been, as everybody else has, <laughs> Zooming and discussing future plans and things of that nature? Have you tried to keep in communication with, with each other for a while? Yeah, definitely. We really haven't stopped. Uh, the only thing that has actually stopped for us during this time was uh, the, the production work itself. Outside of that, uh, company members have been meeting since the beginning of the, the pandemic. We've been meeting every Saturday via Zoom as a company to kind of discuss what kind of new things can the company do to, to stay relevant, to stay out in the public, to be responsive to our community. Um, so we've come up with different programs like the Art That Heals project that we launched on social media which really welcomed people to submit pieces of work that they're just using to heal themselves during this time to remind artists that they can, they can use their art to, to heal themselves and others and giving them that space. We have kept up with our Dunbar project. We have to obviously pivot that from being an in-person class atmosphere with our teachers to uh, Zoom classes. So that actually provided us a new opportunity to get closer to a lot of our students. We offered one-on-one -on -one uh, mentoring sessions with each of our teaching artists. So some of the students have been meeting with the teachers weekly to work on their technical skills, work on what's on their mind to, to create during this time. Um, so that's been running ever since uh, the pandemic hit as well. So we haven't stopped that. Yeah, I had a question about the Dunbar classes. Were they, were they continuing? And you've already answered that. This is sort of an aside, but I'm just curious, what was the response? You know, when I, when I did a, two shows at Ujima, it was looking at you now, I believe it was before you were born. It was over at Theater Loft. Mm -hmm. In that very interesting space, how has been the response to your new space? Oh, people love it. They're like blown away by it. Um, I, being at the theater all the time, tend to forget the, the magic that happens. 
mm-hmm. when people enter our space. We, we took about a year to build out the actual theater space proper. So getting the capital campaign started, making sure we had enough funds to do that complete build out. But once it was finished and it's a, a beautiful black box that's kind of hidden in this school, most folks, when they, they have a difficult time finding us for the most part, they don't believe that there's a theater in this old school. <laughs> um, but I have to remind them, you can just walk through the doors. So I promise we'll be there. Once they're there, they're blown away. It's, uh, people love the space. They love the intimacy that it provides. I love it, but I tend to forget that I love it because I'm around it all the time. Yeah, you start to take it for, take it for granted. Take it for granted. What is your capacity there currently before any kind of COVID adjustments? Yeah, so it's a flex space, but once we have all of the seats on the floor, uh, it's 156. Um, so depending on what productions we do, we might take out the, the side seating. So it can range from 120 to 156 seats. And do you think that it provides you any advantages or disadvantages going forward? Uh, you know, some theaters have the, the, the seats built into the, mm-hmm. the floor, like the Cavanoki, and other, other theaters have a very adaptable space. Yours, it sounds to me like it's very flexible. Do you think that would be an advantage for you going forward if, in fact, we have to Oh, I, I hate to even think about it, but if we have to socially distance in the future, is it, does it present disadvantages or advantages, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think our space prevent, uh, provides some kind of advantage. I'm not sure how much of it. We have those bleacher-styled seatings are kind of our main seating spaces, but once we push those back, the idea is we could possibly socially distance people right on the floor and create more of this uh, a theater in the round kind of atmosphere, something like that. Uh, but the whole idea when Lorna originally proposed it is that the theater be as flexible as possible. So perhaps we might not be doing full-on productions where audience members are in the theater. We're looking at live streaming and what that looks like when we stream to other locations that allow people to socially distance. But having a flex space allows for other things to happen, smaller events, poetry readings, classes, community events, anybody who wants or needs a space, uh, we're lucky in that we have an actual physical space that other people could possibly utilize. And you mentioned that it's a shared building. Does that pose problems for you or is that actually an advantage? Because with other people going in and out of the building, sometimes I I wonder whether that's gonna be a, a disadvantage because you're sort of at the mercy of whatever procedures need to be followed in the building mm-hmm. as, as opposed to it being your own and you can do whatever whatever you want. How do you look at it? Is that a an advantage or a disadvantage for you? Uh, so I, I see it as an advantage. The way that we've operated between the three organizations that have been in the building is that we, we're always in constant contact with each other and a lot of our programs feed into one another. Um, so whenever things that are more technical like in a pandemic, how are we managing the the flow of people in and out? We work on that as a collaborative team and that ends up making it an easier lift. Uh, So Ujima is only a two person staff in all technical terms. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have the capacity to possibly do all of the measures that are involved such as cleaning and disinfecting and, and making sure that all of our areas are safe for the public. But that's something that someone like push can come in and help us in that capacity so the shared space presents mostly pros for me obviously the con is that there are a lot of people that come in and out we've kind of segmented the building in a way that uh, ujima spaces kind of inhabits only one hallway so we're able to kind of control Mm -hmm. just our space you can you can be isolated from other people yeah i see yeah. Well, well, yeah, that would be an advantage then. Do you have a separate entrance? I'm sorry. I apologize that I haven't been there yet. That's all right. 
is it sort of a separate, can you have a separate entrance that's far away from other goings on in the building as well? Yeah, that's definitely a possibility for us. We have, um, we're sort of in the center of the building. So we have one main entrance at the, the front of the building where most people come in and out. And then there's a back entrance uh, that we've requested only GEMA use. Just for previous dealings, it was easiest to manage flow if people were parking on both sides of the building that they're able to to come in from that back entrance. So that's probably going to become our, our our main entrance uh, just to control flow of Ujima patrons. Isolating the people who are from, from everything else. Right. Just out of curiosity, do you, do you have any issues with finances in terms of continuing income? Do you need, do you have people who are on, on a payroll or do you have expenses that you're incurring just, you know, even though the doors are closed, you're incurring expenses or does push take care of that? And do you have people who are currently on a continuing payroll? Yeah. So all of our staff members, AKA me and Lorna previously mm -hmm. were on payroll. Um, now myself and Margaret are still on payroll. We haven't had a reduction in staff or a pause in, in paying our employees. We're lucky mm -hmm. in that. Accord. Um, a lot of that comes from uh, Erie County cultural funding that has allowed us to keep going, as well as federal loans such as like the PPP. We we apply for everything to make sure that we're covered. Um, we're also fortunate in that uh, Push had froze out all of the um, the commercial property rent during the time period that we've been off, so we didn't have to worry about paying our rent. Uh, they knew that all of these businesses are trying to figure out how to fix how to manage this time. So sure, uh, we sure. just recently picked up uh, rent payments with push again, but that really helped us out to make sure that everything's covered. So financially, we're doing pretty good. We're actually looking towards how to fund all of our future programs and productions. I wouldn't say we're worried about them now. We're, we're pretty set. So you don't need to worry right now about having a steady stream of income and picking up for the lost season and so on. You're okay right now. Are you considering other methods of, of not fundraising, but, you know, continuing income? Yeah, we're always looking at that. Um, the unique thing about Ujima is that so much of our work and especially my work as the program director is in partnerships and collaboration. Uh, so a lot of our income isn't necessarily from production. It's from collaborating with other organizations on different projects and initiatives. And the contract funding that comes from that helps to buttress against all of the other costs that we might incur. Our, our, our grant flows have been very helpful during this time, especially in regards to our Dunbar project. Many of our funders came and told us, hey, we understand that the pandemic is posing some issues right now for people and their funding. If you need to turn that into general funds or use that funding to do online work, you are free to do so. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, we really saw a major change in a lot of our funders and an, an initiative from them uh, to support us in this time. So we haven't had much concern. Is there anything about the about your future plans that you can that you've made a decision about? Or I'm sure, like many theaters, you have well, there's contingency A, and then mm -hmm. if not that, then B, and if not B, then C. Have you made any you know official decisions yet, or are you still in the waiting mode, like many people? understandably are. Yeah, we're, we're 
we're still much in the waiting camp. Uh, we know that we want to get back to doing production work to welcome, welcoming audiences back, uh, but, what, but not necessarily in the traditional sense of that word or um, in ways that people have seen before. Um, I'm really pushing our team to innovate in terms of what theater is and what it can become in this new future that we're looking ahead. Perhaps that's not in a traditional sense of going into a theater. Uh, perhaps it's going to a more of a drive-in environment where you are experiencing live theater that's being streamed to you, uh, but the actors are in our performance space and you're just viewing it from a different place that allows you to socially distance, to be around the people that you're usually around, to enjoy a live performance without necessarily any of the risks involved. Um, so we're exploring all of those different models and trying to figure out how do we go to the community um, instead of forcing the community to come to us in a way that is possibly unsafe. So yeah, hopefully we have something to go into uh, the next year, but I know that this this coming fall and winter, we're, we're pretty much um, in the planning phases of things and trying to figure out what it looks like in the larger scale, just because we know so many of our patrons are in high risk categories when it comes to this pandemic and we really don't want to risk uh, their, their health uh, and their lives by opening up our doors too early. You're the first one I've spoken to who has mentioned that concept of bringing the theater to people through live streaming in a drive-in sort of setting. I think, I think that's a fascinating idea. I'm not sure, and I'm sure you're not sure yet, how you could actually accomplish all that, but would you also have other productions in mind that you are planning for the future? Or right now you're just thinking about the one that Lorna had begun and that's the one you're going to continue with. When you do start up, do you have other things beyond that that you're planning? Yeah, so our, our production schedule is still being planned by uh, the company members with some help of uh, legacy company members who are coming help coming back to help us with that, that artistic vision and holding on to that, the, that legacy that Lorna has left us with. Um, so we, we are planning on doing Gospel at Colonus as our next performance. Mm -hmm. uh, we do still plan on putting on Spunk, which was the show that was going to come right after Gospel at Colonus. Um, and then from there, we are, as a company, designing what the next season, whenever that happens to be, will look like. There are several shows that are kind of up in the air for us as we're looking at it. We're following the footsteps of Lorna and choosing it by theme. Uh, so a lot of the shows that we're looking at are looking at the police state and police brutality and themes around uh, systematic oppression, things like that. Sure, sure. Very timely stuff. So you are, at this point, what you can what you can say is that you want to continue when you continue you want to continue with the plays that were originally scheduled and sort of pick up where you left off whenever you pick up and whenever you and then after that you have another season that you're you know that's far far in the future that you're still working on and planning on yes correct yep and what about you know i think that your company is probably so valuable in our community and could you in some way, I mean, we've all heard, and especially because there've been so many articles about Lorna recently and the, the meaning of Ujima and the collective work and responsibility. Could you sort of summarize why Ujima is such an important member of our community, almost an essential member of, of not just the theater community, but, but the Buffalo community in general? I, I, I hate to put you on the spot like this to give me a sort of philosophical thing, but Frankly, I think that you guys at Ujima have this sort of innate sense of it, and, and it's built into you, and Lorna has driven it into you, and you've lived it. So 
Could you possibly just sort of summarize that for me? Sure. I'll try my best not to do the weird wraparound <laughs> um, effervescent kind of talk that we typically do when we talk about Ujima. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I came to Ujima late to the game. So I, I had not known about Ujima prior to, prior to working there. Um, that's mostly because I'm not active in the, in the theater scene prior to my position. But when I came into it, Ujima felt so much more than just a theater company. Um, so we've seen in all of the articles, the meaning of Ujima being a Swahili word, meaning collective work and responsibility. And on paper, that seems great. Like we, we would love to do that. But that is so innate in all of the work that we do and all the work that we continue to choose to do, which is an important part of it. All of the projects, the partnerships, the collaborations, the productions that we choose are all centered on the idea of this collective work and responsibility. Uh, sitting at Lorna's feet and learning from her and seeing how she, she works inside and outside of the theater, that is integral in how she conducts herself and what she produces into the world. For Buffalo, the theater that we do and the art that we try to give and allow people to experience and be a part of is to explore those facets, what it means to be a part of a community, what it means to be an integral part of that community. What are you giving and what are you taking out of it? For Buffalo especially, I don't see that very often in other spaces, in other theater spaces particularly. We are social justice oriented. We are always looking at the community. How do we build them? They are very much a part of us. Um, they're not our patrons, they're our beloved community. Mm -hmm. And that is what I always have carried with me. The way that she has worked with young people, especially um, in terms of our, our shows, just even in her, her direction. You are expected to do homework when you are an actor <laughs> under Lorna's tutelage. Yes, it, that, that's true. Yeah, that's absolutely true of any theater, but you right. help teach that. That's wonderful. Yes. So she is always expecting you to come to rehearsal knowing why are you saying that in this moment? And why is it important that you specifically, as an actor right now, are saying that to this audience? Um, and that really hit home for me because it, it activates artists in a way that provides them an opportunity to teach, to be a part of the change that they want to see. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things we talk about are connected. I stage manage the shows, but I'm also doing all of our program work, which allows me to, to, to create this bridge between issues that people supposedly put in all of these different silos. I have loved my experience here. I hope that Ujima stays around for forever. That's my goal, is to, to turn it into uh, a world-class, internationally renowned theater that's located in Buffalo because I love this town. But yeah, I, I, we are here to stay because the issues that we talk about and that we explore and that we invite people to look at are constant and they're evolving and we evolve right with them. That's wonderful. I can I just ask, how did you get started in Ujima? Because you know, no offense, but you look extremely young, and I, I am. <laughs> uh, you know, that's because I'm old. I don't mean it to be embarrassing or insulting, but no. what was your? How did you get connected to it to begin with? I should have asked you this at the beginning, but <laughs> it just occurred to me now because you said how uh, how it influenced you. But mm -hmm. how did you get involved to begin with? It was a bit of a fluke, actually. <laughs> Um, I had done theater in college. So I went to uh, school at Canisius. So did I. There it is. 
Full circle. Uh, graduated in 2016, and uh, about a year later, my friend, whom I had worked with um, at the Canisius College Little Theater, uh, called me up and, was, and said he was in a show at Ujima called Free Fred Brown, and that they were looking for a stage manager to see if I was interested. So we hadn't talked for a while since he graduated. I wanted to get back into theater after graduating, and I thought this was a, a good first step. Let's see how it goes. Um, so I started off with stage managing that show, and Lorna fell in love with me and did everything in her power to keep me around. So she, after the show, she <laughs> offered me a part-time position, which is all she could offer me as an administrative assistant. And I took that as an opportunity to continue working in theater. And then from there, um, I became the company manager and then the program director about a year later. Uh, so it was a very, very fast rise. But um, anybody who has been in Lorna's orbit knows that she has a very keen eye for people and for the uh, gifts that they have within themselves that we, are, we don't recognize until we're mm -hmm. doing the work that she's placed us to do. So I'm beyond grateful for the ability to work with her in, in such a short period of time, um, but to learn an immense amount about what it means to, to truly be an artist. That's beautiful. I know exactly how you felt. First time I did a show at Ujima, you always felt like you were just part of the family. And, and it all radiated from her. And it, it, there was just something about the feeling in the room right. that, was, that was like a family and you all worked hard together for each other, right. for yourself and for each other. But I was always so impressed with her, and I was so impressed with the whole company. I, I've kept you a little longer than I expected, but it's been a lot of fun talking to you. And I look forward to meeting you at some time in the future, face-to-face, -face, <laughs> hopefully over yeah. at 77 Plymouth. Yeah. And uh, and I wish you a lot of luck, and uh, and I send a lot of love to the to the whole company. So thank you for being with me today, Maria. I really appreciate it. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you, Peter. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That young lady, as a program director over at Ujima, has a lot on her plate. And speaking of a lot on your plate, Stephanie Crockett from the Olmsted Conservancy has a lot on her plate these days. So let's see what she has to say about it here on Off-Road. Where is the office located? So in Delaware Park, um, it's the Parkside Lodge, and our offices are upstairs and downstairs, and it's mostly administration. Mm -hmm. And had you been forbidden to go in there for the past three or four months? We we stayed away for probably two months, and then we started having myself and our CFO just come in every once in a while. And now that golf is approved, golf operates out of the building. So then our golf staff is allowed. But yeah, it's a whole new world with access and sanitation and distancing. <laughs> so it's, it's new. Well, of course, knowing that I was going to be talking to you, I did some research because all I really knew was I've performed with Shakespeare in Delaware Park several times. And all I ever heard was, oh, the Olmstead Conservancy, we better check with them about this. They've been so good about that. But, but I never really understood the, the incredible expanse of what you guys deal with all the time. I mean, all of these parks, what, what is it like six, six parks and six major parks, seven, seven, what was it? Parkways and, and eight circles and eight circles. Holy cow. Yeah. So I want to go back to the very, very beginning of all of this. Uh, I, I promise <laughs> not to take too much of your time, but That's all right. I find these things so fascinating because all, all I've learned is how little I know about the city I've lived in my whole 
life. And I've always been a huge fan of both architecture and park design, followed the, the Ken Burns Parks uh, series and reading all about Olmsted and so on. And, and I, but I just didn't know anything about it. So let me go back a little bit. What, <laughs> what are your responsibilities? Maybe not you personally, but what does the Olmsted Conservancy deal with in normal times? In normal times. Yeah, let's just, <laughs> let's not even talk about the quarantine and the COVID-19 yet. Okay. What in, in normal times, you, you have six parks, seven parkways, eight circles, yep. all these little pocket parks, all these other, so you speak. Okay, well, the Conservancy started off just as a friends group. We were just advocates for park protection and restoration. And we did that for a number of years, starting back in 1978. The Science Magnet School, I believe, was being added to the Science Museum. And it went in on top of a five-acre uh, rose garden there. Now, there's just a little yes. rose garden there, which we call the cottage garden. It has a wall around it. But that was the first kind of intrusion of taking parkland um, for development purposes. And that's when our group got together. So since that point, we've been advocating to try to protect the parks. And then in 2004, I think the city was in decline. I, I didn't live here then, but I believe the city was in decline and they had given the parks over to the county, to Erie County. And at that point, Erie County asked us as a conservancy, would you like to maintain the parks that you're advocating for? And Without, I don't think without a business plan, uh, we said, yes, we'll do it. And uh, so... Thinking, thinking that would give you greater control over sure. actually conserving what needed to be and protecting what needed to be protected, but also taking on an incredible amount of responsibility. Right. It allows us to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So, so we took on that, gave the parks back to the city in 2010, and we renewed an agreement with the city then. And then we just recently renewed a 12-year agreement with the city to continue doing our maintenance efforts. So we've got kind of a dual mission now. So on one hand, we do the advocacy and protection. And on the other hand, we're doing maintenance and restoration. And that's what we do. I would say probably 60% of our job right now really is just maintaining the parks. It's hard to bring something new into the parks as a restoration unless we have that maintenance uh, stability to be able to sustain it. So maintenance is key. So does that mean that you have a gigantic staff or do you have a staff that controls and monitors the city parks maintenance workers? So we have a maintenance staff um, that was added to our advocacy staff. And that maintenance staff is about 100 to 120 people, depending on how many seasonals we are able to hire for the year. Park season for us runs April 1st to about November 1st, and that's usually when our um, seasonal workers are employed with us. But we do have 35 full-time people that are working year-round, so it's supplemented. And then we, we have seven city parks workers that are assigned to work with us, which is great. Mm -hmm. So the city helps us as well with, with providing seven people, and it really is a labor of love. We work hand in hand with the city, but we are not in charge of any other city parks besides the Olmsted Historic Parks. So the city still has another 160 or so parks that they take care of beyond about the 25 that we're taking care of. I see. And when, when you talk about conserving and preserving, what is your 
you must have a, a, like a Bible, a, a something that you aspire to, some kind of a do. Frederick Law Olmsted rule book <laughs> that, you, that you follow. And said, no, 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 those don't go there because th that's not the way Fred would have done it yep. or something of that nature. So we have uh, what we call our master plan and we update it every five years. We just went through that update last year, actually, and we're implementing the five or the five year priorities now. So, but we try to stay relevant. One of the questions we continue to ask ourselves in our advocacy and preservation protection is yes, we want to keep the historical integrity of the parks intact, but then we also have to consider what's happening out there in the world and what would Fred do today, right? So we're always <laughs> asking ourselves, what would Mr. Olmsted do today? And, you know, there are philosophies out there that Mr. Olmsted I've said it before, he'll, he would be on rollerblades right now. He would be, you know, <laughs> enjoying the parks. So we understand that there's going to be modern amenities or updates that are needed. So we try to incorporate them as best as possible without interfering too much with the historical integrity of the parks. I forget this now, but I know I've read it and I know I saw it in the parks documentary. He designed Central Park in New York City before buffaloes yes and that was and then he decided that rather than having a central location he would have all of these separate locations and they would be connected with these parkways yes. and the parkways would connect really one park to the next and i've seen the map and, and of course some of the parkways i'm old enough to remember humboldt parkway yes and i remember the beautiful tree-lined humboldt parkway and I remember driving down, so I must have been at least 16, driving down Humboldt Parkway and then going up to look down as they were digging the huge oh, no. into the ground and watched them dismantle that to put in the Kensington Expressway, uh, well, that segment, section of the Kensington Expressway. Yep. And at the time, I was a kid, and, and, you know, I guess we all were in those days just thinking about progress. Sure. Well, we're making more room for cars and things, and it's one of the many many mistakes people have tried to recover from yep. and they and the talk now about possibly bringing back Humboldt Parkway covering it all over I think oh that's I'm never going to live to see that but oh god that would be beautiful <laughs> you know to turn turn the whole thing into a tunnel and put the I, I just remember that beautiful median yes. with all of the trees and everything I remember that so I have a great affinity for that whole system that he developed. Okay. Yeah. Now. <laughs> but so if you going back to your point, Central Park was his first big park. Mm -hmm. He won he won the commission to do that. He then did Prospect Park. Okay. In Prospect Park, he introduced kind of an oval circle into that park, which was like his first um, experiment with these circles. Okay. And then our park system is his very first park system. And that's when he kind of integrated the circles, the parkways, and the parks. And it really is genius. We're, we're lucky to have it. And then he went on to do things in other cities as well, from, what I, from what I understand. Yes. All right. Well, that's a great history lesson for the yeah. <laughs> and a great refresher for me because I, I've also forgotten as much as I remember. Well, Stephanie, here's what I'd like to ask you then. So sure. when the COVID-19, when the quarantine hit and all of that, you were sort of between sessions you said your your season runs from what were the dates again april 1st april 1st so this was a good month or so maybe a few weeks less than that ahead of time when you did get back into the season for yourselves 
what were you expected to do to sort of cooperate with this quarantine decision? What what did you have to do? Well, the first notice that we, we were first worried that the parks could close. That was the first worry. And then when we were deemed as essential workers and that the parks would stay open, which I think was very smart. Yes. Um, then we went into just a full blown mode of bring back as many people as we possibly can. And because there were options like the PPP program, yes. we were able to bring back more people sooner, which was fantastic. We didn't have to stagger like we usually do. So we got ramped up. And but the crazy thing is with all the PPE, the, the personal protection equipment, yes. that has been just a little bit interesting because we're outdoors. Our folks try to keep a mask on them at all times to kind of just pull it up if we are getting too close to other people. But I don't think we realized fully the increase in density and use that we were going to see. Within the first couple of weeks, we just by visual, we saw about 40% more people in the parks within the first two weeks. And that prompted the city to close ring roads in South Park and Delaware Park just for the spacing ability. I remember that, So yes. those were some additional adjustments that had to take place. And then we were constantly putting out signage about passive activity, keeping distance. And then it was decided that because there are so many activities in the parks, which actually create contact, um, we had the, the playgrounds, we had the basketball courts, we had the tennis courts, we had all of these amenities that were shut down initially. And then we've slowly been releasing them back to the public uh, as we can. So it's been, you know, at first it was just huge density issues. And I can't tell you just the trash oh, issues sure. because people were afraid to touch receptacles. So they're just dropping it on the ground. It was oh, just no. insanity because you're requiring another human being to pick it up and put it in the, you know, it's just thoughtless. But I understand people were slightly panicking. There's a little bit of fear involved as well. Absolutely. I found Absolutely. I found a mask lying on the ground outside of my home, so I can. Oh my gosh! I can imagine, you know. <laughs> and I live in the suburbs, so uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Continue. No, but so it was. It was there was an adjustment period to just the amount of people and the amount of density, the the amount of trash, and then just the amount of calls that we were fielding from people wondering if the parks were open or closed, what areas were open or closed. We worked with the city on doing a trails program where we talked about, you don't just have to walk Ring Road in Delaware Park. We've got six parks, seven parkways and eight circles. You know, there's <laughs> a lot more you can explore in the parks. And so we worked with them to put together some trails mapping um, to help kind of fan people out a bit better. But there's been just, it's been like a ratcheted, compilation in time like it's it's i call it layers of complication like we <laughs> we, keep, we keep seeing a new layer all the time and so this week we're finally able to open up the playgrounds again so we're putting the swings back out but again these are kind of at your own risk areas you know we need people to be smart and remember to bring their own hand sanitizer i mean we can't put that out in the parks it'll disappear in five minutes so sure it's you know it's a new normal it's a bit abnormal as a new normal but we're finding our way it's like i said little by little you have to maintain the playgrounds as well and there cannot be someone assigned yeah. as there is at the, at the grocery store to clean off the shopping cart no. there can't be somebody who can keep those no. swing sets every time somebody goes on when you it has to be people have to do it on their own is what you're absolutely telling. this is where people need to take a little personal responsibility 
and a little common sense. Yes. And if your children are going to be playing on the swings, make sure they've used hand sanitizer before they get on them and make sure they get a little hand sanitizer when they get off them. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not that complicated personal responsibility. Right. 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 And it's funny that you talk about when all of a sudden you saw a big rush. If I recall, didn't we have winter up through like mid May this year? Yes. So we had winter and then the next day it was 85 degrees It was or something, something like that. And I remember seeing on TV, <laughs> <laughs> We skipped spring. all of a sudden, yeah, there's no spring this year. All of a sudden we just jumped. It's the old joke that Buffalo has two seasons, winter and July. <laughs> and we went right from winter winter to July in, in June 1st or whatever it was. So I'll bet, yeah. and, and this is what you pretty much told me that it was, it was crazy for a bit. It really was. Um, we were lucky. I think there were, there was like a week or 10 days of really bad rains, which kind of kept everybody away. Um, but that wreaks havoc for us because then the ground gets saturated Yes, and just creates mud pits and then you've got the, you know, as soon as the sunshine comes back on, you've got people back out in the parks and now they're in a muddy mess. Mm -hmm. So there's never a perfect scenario, but we do our best. So you have nothing to do with the parks in the winter? No, we do. <laughs> of course you do. Well, so like, so, so like sledding is not supposed to happen in the parks from a liability uh, standpoint. I won't tell um, anyone. Yes. It's a secret. No. It's, it's funny. I have a funny story for you. So there's Shakespeare Hill is infamous for people sledding where they shouldn't be sledding because we never know, you know, what's underneath the snow, right? That's right. So there was, there was a sign at one point that said no sledding and someone took the sign down and used it as a sled. <laughs> I thought that was ingenious. I know. So every time I had spoken to Saul about it and saying, well, Saul, have you ever just thought about moving Shakespeare, he said, well, you know, we, we pick this part, this particular spot. Little did we know it's, it's Buffalo's favorite sledding hill as well. <laughs> and I thought, it is. Uh, I, I walked through there about a week ago, two weeks ago on a Friday with a friend of mine. But we saw probably for, for the very first time that beautiful hill with nothing on it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it, it looks so barren number one but huge <laughs> that you don't realize it when when shakespeare has all of their stuff up there sure. but then you see it without it and it's absolutely a gorgeous gorgeous sight and i, yes. I can see i and, and it's and it's high so i can see why although there is the chance you go down the hill you end up right in the lake if you come at it from the right angle if, if at the right <laughs> angle yes so well anyway so you do you do take care of things in the winter as well we do. but of course there's not as much maintenance and that no that's why it's a seasonal job are you like on call if there is a, a question about there's a plowing situation and someone pushed some snow up and dug into the made ruts in the park is there anything like that and they give you a call and they say uh, uh, Stephanie, what do we do? No, we usually we usually find out about the ruts in the park when the snow melts, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I see. And then are there rules for how to make sure that comes back? It's got to come back exactly as it was? Yeah, yeah, that's a first priority. That's a first priority is filling in all the ruts as best we can mm -hmm. and trying to stabilize them with seed. But again, it, it winds up getting even muddier when the rains come in the spring. And then those ruts that we're trying to establish you know, to fill in are just becoming muck piles. And then it's just, it's just one of those things that we have to deal with every year, but we get through it. And usually like about this time of year, those areas, they're bruised, 
but they're coming back. <laughs> are there, you know, in these, all these, the six parks, seven parkways and eight circles, are there things that have continual maintenance on a schedule, not just things where you say, well, just go check and make sure that the rose garden is right or whatever, but are there things that on a daily basis must be maintained? Absolutely. So, and the crazy thing is our parks workers right now spend the first, I want to say one to two hours of their day, just picking up trash. Oh boy. And we have to do this before we can do any other work. We can't mow with trash there because then we're just making a mess. So it's really, and it's scary to me how much trash is in some of the parks when there are trash receptacles mm -hmm. and it takes up so much time. But anyway, we get through the trash and then we go into mowing or weeding, planting, watering. Um, there is a daily schedule that each park follows and each park's a little different because they're, they're made up of different amenities and they're in different locations. So each team, we have four districts, four park districts, and we have district supervisors and they have their plan of work every day. And then we've got special projects that are additionally happening in the parks as far as restorations. So we've got the daily maintenance and then we've got the restoration projects. Have you come across, because of the quarantine, have you come across any particular problems that are unique to your situation or that you hadn't had to deal with before, aside from the masks and I guess aside from the the trash. <laughs> PPE trash <laughs> that is that is lying all over yeah. the place. Anything that because of the distancing or because of the, you know, you're trying to protect your workers and so on, that has been an unusual problem that you've had to deal with? Really, I think just the fact that there's a little bit of public confusion as to what our role is. Um, we get asked frequently um, and our, our workers get asked frequently out in the parks why we aren't enforcing mask use, why are, aren't we enforcing social distancing? And that's really not our role. Mm -hmm. And people, they get frustrated. They're like, why aren't the parks, why isn't the Conservancy doing more? But that's not our role. Our role is to keep the parks clean and healthy and, and safe, but that doesn't mean policing. That's a whole other area. Right. And it's not like you have to wear masks every second. Like you said, they all have their masks with them. They all have them in case... Yep. In case they get too close to other people, it, it, the mask requirement is a requirement if you cannot maintain Correct. the distance. The Correct. distance, and, and I'm not sure everybody understands that either. <laughs> and I often see people driving in their cars With their mask wearing on. a mask. I know. And I think, what did, did you miss that? Which one of Cuomo's <laughs> press conferences did you miss that when they were talking about about that? There have been plenty of them. How about this? Have you have you come up with any new procedures or have you discovered anything new that, that you thought, oh, well, you know, we never did it this way before. Is there anything unusual or new that that you said, this, this is actually something we could do in the future? Well, I know that this isn't a favorite thing, but the um, portalettes in the parks, mm -hmm. which are, in my opinion, disgusting. <laughs> Um, all of those were removed because who wants to be using a public toilet in a COVID situation? Oof. So all of the plastic toilets were mm -hmm. removed out of the parks, which I was grateful for because we have facilities. We have brick and mortar facilities yes. that serve as bathrooms. Unfortunately, all of those have been closed as well. So we're in a dilemma between the plastic yucky toilets and the, the brick and mortar toilets. We have put a few of the plastic ones out, but again, it's crazy to think how you can keep them clean in between each use. That's not, again, we're not janitors. 
you know, we're parks workers. And you can't assign somebody to stand outside of them no. and say, oh, you're going in here. Here's some. I know yeah. it's it's just kind of crazy. Again, personal responsibility. We need people to, to do that. Um, we do have the units being serviced as far as the dumping and removal on a more regular basis. But we're waiting for when the time comes, we can open up the public buildings again to have people use the indoor brick and mortar restrooms. I see. We're going to have to come up with a plan for how we will keep those clean as well. And that's what we're working on right now is once the buildings get reopened to the public, how do we do that in a safe manner? And what, what's holding up that approval? Really just the the plan for personnel and and how are we going to come up with a maintenance schedule that seems reasonable and um, that the city i mean this these are city buildings mm -hmm. so the city has to feel comfortable with whatever plan is put in place so we're working together to try to to come up with something but right now it sounds like those public buildings won't be opened for the whole season wow so is that something that when you say it's the city, it's the government, is it the city making the decision? Yes. The city has to make the decision of when they think they can make them safe enough? Well, it's interesting. I think in some of the state parks, they do have their brick and mortar bathrooms working. And I think at the county, they may as well. But the city has been holding off. They've got a lot of facilities and that's going to require personnel, a lot of personnel and resources to be able to, to maintain them. So right now it's kind of a one of those challenges, like where are we gonna come up with the extra personnel and, and the resources? So mm -hmm. right now they're closed. And I know that once they get the plan in place, we'll slowly start to reopen them. But I'm hoping that we can keep plastic toilets out of our parks, because I think they're just disgusting. But that's me. <laughs> well, I have some news for you. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> it is not just your opinion. It is a it is a shared opinion. Even when I'm attending Shakespeare in Delaware Park, it's can I hold it just a for a three hour <laughs> a three hour performance? Can I hold it? And I just had a whole bottle of wine, and it's, it's yeah. There's and sometimes you just say, "All right, I just hold your nose and close your mouth and just and, and run away." Speaking of which, do they have this hand sanitizer little stations outside of those plastic they do. things? They now do. So um, a lot of the the plastic toilets will have a hand sanitizer station inside the unit. Yes. So you can at least do that. You can, which is good. At least do that. At least. Well, Stephanie, I, I just in in closing here, I appreciate all of your time. Sure. But I would like you to tell me, uh, tell all of us, why what you do, why the Olmstead Conservancy is is so important to this city, and you're not convincing me because I'm already, <laughs> I'm already convinced. <laughs> in my mind, you are an essential part of the city, uh, part of Western New York. Whether whether you were deemed so by the quarantine or not. What makes the Olmstead Conservancy an essential part of Western New York living? Well, we're in a very unique partnership with the city. And as partners, we are really focused on protecting these valuable green assets, which I think through this COVID situation, people are realizing are more valuable than ever before. They are the lungs of the city. So here we're taking care of half of the city's park acreage. We are you know, working to restore areas that are so vital to just Buffalo's presence as being that first urban park system designed in the entire nation. I mean, there's a lot of claim to fame and we have a lot of pride in the work that we do. We have a wonderfully diverse workforce that we continue to have out in the parks that, that love their jobs, that work very hard. It's a labor of love that we have going on for our parks. And 
really they are the front yards and backyards to so many neighborhoods and so many diverse and culturally rich areas within the city. I mean, we're just very fortunate. And to have a caretaker such as a conservancy, which is going out and raising private dollars to pay for public parks, it just means that we can do our job that more better. And, and we're serving a greater community. I, I should have asked you this before, but do you know or have you heard horror stories about parks in other cities where the designer's original intent was destroyed or look what they did to this park, look what they did to this natural beauty. Because I feel like without a conservancy, there would be elements of, I don't even want to say government, maybe the private sector, who might say, you know, here's a nice chunk of land. Sure. We don't really. Exactly. And there are probably horror stories from all over the country, maybe even all over the world, where natural beauty is constantly being, sure, if not destroyed, then altered. Absolutely. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we started off as an advocacy group, is we want to protect these assets. You know, Buffalo will never get these assets back again if they're taken. You know, it's it's been years since the taking of Humboldt Parkway. Who knows if we'll ever get that back, right? It's, it's a massive loss. And when you think yes. of if we right now had the ability for people to walk from Delaware Park to MLK Park, which is exactly what that parkway did, think of just that wonderful connection oh. that is completely severed. And, and all of those homes and families that have suffered from that loss. That whole neighborhood was, was transformed. Absolutely. It was a beautiful neighborhood and it became an expressway. Yeah. Absolutely. And and who wants that for their front yard? So that's that's why we exist. We advocate, but then we also maintain what we advocate for. And so we believe it's a hand-in-hand -hand relationship with the community. We appreciate anyone that supports us because it just it's going to the greater good. And the parks are free, you know, and but yet free is expensive. <laughs> so, you know, but that's the role we play. Do you have fundraising events? We do. How, how do people, if people are interested, how do they support the Olmstead Conservancy? Well, anyone can give online, as, as people are learning to do. But we do have two fundraisers a year. We, we, we know that everybody's got charitable dollars that are going to go in a multiple places. But So we concentrate on bookending the park season. So we have a luncheon that we do uh, in the spring, and we have a gala that we do in the fall. And that's, that's about it for the fundraising, other than just little crazy things that we do now and then with like flamingos and stuff. But um, <laughs> I saw the flamingos. They're very, very <laughs> cute. And very, a lot of kids were Thank on them. You. They were very, very fun. Thank you. Do you still plan to have the, have the event in the fall? So yeah, that event is uh, uh, August 28th this year and we're doing it um, virtually. We're going to have our gala. It's, you know, we, we were very successful in having a virtual luncheon. We met our fundraising goals, so we believe that we can do it again for the gala. And if people want to be involved in that, if, if I, for example, I've been to your website, it's a lovely website, but if people want to be involved in that fundraising event in August, the 21st, you said? 28th. 28th, I'm sorry. How do you get involved in that? How would you sign up, register for that? Yep, there's a link on the website, which will take you to information about the, the gala itself. And then there's a contact person on our staff, Sarah Larkin, who's our events coordinator, and they can contact her and find out how to get involved as well. And then we have also been cleared by the city to start offering um, our volunteer groups again, 
up to 10 people in volunteer groups. So that's happening again with people being able to come out and help in the parks. So that's how people can get involved. It's, it's vital and it's important. Well, I, I cannot stress enough, I, I, just as important as saving all of the beautiful buildings in town, all of the beautiful architecture in town, just as important is saving all of these outdoor spaces. We consider ourselves the curb appeal of Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds very reasonable to me, I think. Stephanie, very thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate hearing your story of how the COVID-19 has affected. And I'm glad to hear that things are sort of restoring some level of normalcy. It's, yeah, it's uh, getting a little bit back to normal. We'll see what the rest of the summer brings. It's slow, I'm sure. Yeah, it's like growing a plant, you know, we're just nurturing it day by day. <laughs> Lovely analogy. Thank you. Stephanie, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Peter. Bye-bye now. Bye. What did I tell you? A lot on her plate, too. And speaking of plates, that reminds me of serving up another, another episode of Mystery Guest. Messages from the Bunker. I've decided to share with the listeners one thing that surprised me and one thing that might surprise them about my COVID pandemic lockdown experience. The thing that surprised me is that I over-socialized, especially early on. I was on Zoom multiple times a day for meetings and reunions and gatherings. Um, I don't even like to socialize that much in real life. And so I would wake up with like terrible Zoom hangovers, like literally feeling like a garbage can in the morning. So I had to kind of squash that. The thing that might surprise others is that I never ordered takeout. I did order a couple of mystery boxes from Lake Effect Ice Cream to share with friends, but I never ordered food from a restaurant to be delivered or picked up during the pandemic. And for that, I am very proud of myself. Hmm, it's such a mystery. I wonder who that could be. It sounds so familiar. And speaking of familiar, here's somebody who's already been on the podcast a couple of times, but this time it's all business as we talk to Lorraine O'Donnell about what's going to happen with the Kavanoki. What I really want to know is your take on the shutdown and what's been going on since then. So take it away. Oh, well, what's been going on here? Well, uh, yeah, it was, as you say, the demise of indecent like every other theater in town that was running was was shocking. And it was almost like I was numb for the first month after that happened, trying to figure everything out. And of course, you know, first month I had a full staff. And then after that, we, uh, everyone was furloughed except for myself. So I was trying to navigate through all of this and wasn't really sure the first couple of months. I was so busy just trying to figure out, like all of us, trying to navigate through this, trying to figure out what does this mean? What is this going to mean? What can I do in the meantime while we have nothing on stage? And watching television, listening to the news, trying to figure, trying to figure this out. Looking at it now, for the first couple of months, I, I don't think it even dawned on me how long this could go. I was numb to it. And you, and you had the set 
still up for indecent and you actually told the cast, we, we actually thought there was a chance we could come back in July. That's what I was hoping. I was really hoping that because at that point, that was what, four months away, right? So we thought if we all do what we're supposed to do, it might be a possibility. And here we are, and we all know that that's not a possibility. So unfortunately for Indecent, because we ended up doing almost half of the run, that's not something that we bring back next year. We're going to have to wait a few years to bring that back. But I do fully intend on, on bringing that back. It was such a special show, and I'm so proud of our production. And there were two people I know very well who saw the production on Broadway and saw our production and said that our production brought a warmth and a heart to the piece that they did not necessarily feel on Broadway. So especially that show being interrupted, I felt, as I know the cast and crew did, just felt robbed. And I know you felt that way too, Peter. We all did. It was a, uh, yeah, I don't want to get into it. I think you've said it all perfectly, but I felt lucky that we had had the opportunity to have people see it. And enough said about that. So what's been going on at the Cavs since then? What I know you had a, the, the seats replaced or you were going to have the seats replaced. What's the, uh, you were the only, you're the only one there right now, I assume, except for maybe college maintenance and so on. What else is going is there anybody else working there right now? Well, it's just maintenance and a few other people that have to be there every once in a while. But for safety reasons, you know, there's no one at Devil right now. What's what's interesting about the remodel is, you know, we've been doing the take a seat campaign. The seats in the theater and the carpeting were, you know, we're 40 years old this year. The seats and carpeting were 40 years old this year. And so about two years ago, we started this take a seat program where we, we just really, really needed to, to get new seats. And so we sold quite a few. We were very happy with that. And then NISCA came in, New York State Regional Development Council, right, came in and gave us a matching grant for the rest of the amount that we needed. So automatically, all of a sudden, we had all the money we needed, at least for this part. And so we ended up taking all the old seats out and gave them to another rising theater company, so they'll live on, and ripped out all the carpeting. And it kind of worked out when Cuomo let all the construction begin again. That's when we started bringing the painters in. Now, originally the theater was not supposed to be painted, but Deuville, in their in their wisdom, said, "Well, this would be stupid for us to not update the paint if we're going to update the carpeting and the seats." And so when a construction was approved and other things were approved, we were able to get some local people in there, local painters who were doing a wonderful job, put them back to work. I won't go into detail except to say that it's not just a repaint of the same colors. It's a totally new color scheme. Wow. And it's gorgeous. I'm in there. I have to work with contractors and, and designers and things like that. So I'm in there about once a week. And the transformation is unbelievable. They're also doing things that I never noticed before, like they're adding little pieces of trim that maybe they forgot 40 years ago. <laughs> These little nitpicky things that, as you know, in the theater, we're always trying to play catch up. I never had time to even notice. No. But the attention to detail is unbelievable. All new lighting. The patrons are going to be in a state of shock when they walk in. 
And that's kind of what makes all of us the more bittersweet is it's going to be ready in September, <laughs> but it's unbelievable. You're not, you're not going to recognize the place. So, and also the good thing is because we had already raised the money for the seats and we got to go towards the seats and the repair of the theater. So we didn't have to worry about COVID finances affecting the work in the theater. That was nice because I know everybody's worried about money right now, but that grant money can only be used for that. So it was great being able to do that and, of course, put a lot of people to work through this. So we're over the moon excited. You told me a while back that there was a problem getting this, the new seats in because of the quarantine around the country. Has that been alleviated? Well, we ended up ordering them earlier, but you're right. We, the, seat, the seats are manufactured in Michigan. And Michigan was totally shut down. But now uh, with things back up, it looks like the seats will be installed like the third week of August. So it's perfect. But for a while, when they weren't open, we were worried. <laughs> well, maybe we'll just have to put folding chairs up for the first show. It's not going to be a problem. So it's it's just beautiful. Well, then let's get into it. When will the audiences be coming back into the theater to be shocked and thrilled and surprised and delighted? Okay, well, originally I was trying to be Pollyanna. I was trying to be optimistic and say, of course we can do a show in September. We have months and months and months and months. But as many theaters are, are discussing, we are going to postpone. However, we're not gonna postpone as much as some people are. Originally, we were going to do a one-woman show starring me called I'll Eat You Last, A Chat with Sue Mengers. That was going to be our September show. It's about Hollywood agent Sue Mengers who, who repped Barbara Streisand and Ally McGraw. It's a very funny show. Bette Midler was in on Broadway six years ago, and it's hilarious. We were originally supposed to do that in September, and then we were going to do The Woman in Black in November. Rock of Ages in January, Pride Prejudice in March, and People, Places, and Things in May. So what we've decided to do is, and of course this all, this could also change, but I, I feel pretty good about this plan. We are going to shift everything to the first show starting in November. And the first show will be the one woman show, I'll Eat You Last. Now we are going to remove the woman in black and we're going to put that in next season so i'll let you last in november that's going to go through november december and it's also going to be live streamed oh this show is perfect for live streaming because it's a one woman show she doesn't move much and we could still do a multi-camera live stream of the show and you really won't be missing anything so at that point even if we were only allowed to have like 50 people in the audience mm -hmm. that would be okay but then our audience would be able to choose how they feel comfortable we can come in an audience of 50 people or they can live stream it so we're feeling pretty we're feeling pretty good about that that if things get better we could if we needed to extend the run of that show so that'll be november december the biggest musical we were going to do this year, which is Rock of Ages, I can't imagine that that's probably going to be a good idea to do in January. So to be cautious, we're going to stay dark in January or perhaps do the one-woman show. And then 
in March, we will do Pride and Prejudice like we had previously scheduled, and then People, Places, and Things in May. And then we're going to take Rock of Ages and make that into a summer show. Oh. That'll be June, July. Nice. So we're hoping that within all of this, that gets us four shows within this season. With the first show being in November, that can kind of float between November and January if it needs to. Because the thing is, if you're also thinking about finances, even if we can do a show in January, if we can only do 50 people or half capacity, a big musical, obviously, that's a lot of money. And we would not, we wouldn't even be able to break even with something like that and keep everybody safe. Also, it's a huge show. So that's why we decided to put the biggest show in the summer because hopefully, you know what? We're going to be okay by that. Hopefully. Now to keep before that season starting in November, that shift, something I'm very excited about. In September and October, we're going to bring a series called Live from the Calf. And we're going to be bringing uh, a couple of people like, uh, well, I don't even want to, I, I, a couple of musicians and a couple of actors who also sing combination of me interviewing them about their careers and then and then them doing a couple of either with piano or guitar live on the stage at the calf we'll do two of those a month two of those in the month of september and two of those in the month of october gearing up to the show opening in november okay let me see if i understand this now so first of all the november one one woman show could be in November. It could actually even shift to December or January. It's sort of floating. Your your plan is to open it in November, but maybe it might be moved later on because an actual production, the next production won't be until next year, February or, or March, correct? That's correct. That one woman is kind of, it's a safety almost. Okay, and the, and the live streaming of that will be recorded one time and then could be available online at any time? Uh, we're still working out those deals with the royalty company, but I know it will be, it will be streaming at some point. So there will be choices for our patrons if they, you know, if they don't feel comfortable being in a theater yet, and that's okay. So with the people sitting within the theater, we will be adhering to the guidelines no matter what. Now, here's the other great thing about streaming is that if we have to shut down, we need two people to run that show. So we could still live stream the show with no people in the audience. I see. We'll still be available to live stream it. So either way, the show will go on. All right. So unlike other theaters that only have 90 or 100 seats, you could run at 50% capacity. Has that been considered or is that really not financially viable? For this one woman show, we would be we would be okay because I took my little tape measure and I went into the theater and that means between people we would have to have three empty seats and we would have to skip every other row. And if we were to do that, we can fit 57 people in the theater. Wow. Adhering to what social distance guidelines. We can do that just 57 which is why this one woman show would work under those guidelines along again with streaming so we could do it with people without so we're excited about that so people have a choice they don't have to feel uncomfortable well that's the advantage of i guess of, of your situation one of my questions was going to be what's the advantage of that theater 
or disadvantage of that theater. And the advantage is that you could socially spread people out, but still 57 people is not much to run on. But as you also said, maybe some people won't necessarily feel comfortable coming back to the theater unless you give them that wide open space. And even so, it's available also live streaming. So you've got an alternate Mm -hmm. choice for all of that. Final question, anything else you'd like to say about the CAV and reopening and and so on, because we've got to cut this out. We've got to stop meeting this way. (laughs) Well, I know a lot of people right now are are worried about our friends who are artists and working, and I do. I I worry about our actors and our stage managers and our costumers and uh, everyone who's out of work right now, but I truly do believe that when we're able to get back in a theater, it's going to be bigger than it's ever been. I think if there's a good side to all of this, it's the fact that people, I think, now recognize how important the arts are and how important live art is. I I agree with you. I think there's going to be a a roar, a cheer from the audience when, well, frankly, from that moment when you walk out to greet everybody, when the cab opens fully and you walk out and welcome the audience back, there's go- you're probably going to get a standing ovation because it's just going to be the excitement, the thrill of it, of being back together again will be overwhelming. You know, we can do streaming for days. We can film projects. And I really appreciate artists and theaters trying to continue their work, you know, on Zoom, on the Zoom platform, live streaming, through other medium. But there's nothing like being in an audience of a theater, the lights go down, and they come up, and you're sitting next to people you love, and you're sitting next to people that you don't even know, and you have this collective experience, this, this feeling that you can't get from a screen. It has to be there. You have to be there. It has to be live. It's a moment that you can't get any other way, but in a live theater with actors and other people around experiencing what you experience at the same time. It's kind of like church, and it's like church for a lot of us. Very nice. Listen, Lorraine, thanks so much for for talking about it today. Okay. I appreciate it. I will... This is going to go out Monday, uh, the 20th. So I will that be okay to reveal all of these things? Oh, yeah, that's that's in 11 days. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to beat your, you know, your public announcement to to anything. It's not like I'm trying to get an exclusive here. I just want to make sure that you haven't revealed anything. No, that'll be perfect because this is this is going to be figured out and announced for next week. So probably by the end of next week. So that timing will be perfect. Great. Listen, Lorraine, have a wonderful day. Thanks. Say hi to Deck for me. I will. Enjoy your vacation. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous, but uh, <laughs> all my love. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, honey. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. That's what's going on at the Cavanoke this season. Maybe. As with all the other theaters, there's a lot of contingencies and a lot of what-ifs. And now here's Ed Cardoni from Hall Walls. I love this interview. I hardly had to talk at all. 
How did things go with you during the quarantine? I assume you shut everything down and had to leave the building. Yes. Was, was anybody still there? No. So the shutdown came for us in a very tough week. Uh, we had an artist in residence, uh, John Oswald, an artist and a musician, a composer uh, from Toronto. And he was one of our uh, three artists in residence that we uh, can bring with a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts for a project mm -hmm. called Hallwalls Artists in Residence Project, or HARP. And we've been doing that for almost 25 years. So it's an ongoing uh, multidisciplinary project. And I came up with this idea called HARP, Hallwalls Artists in Residence Project. And each curator, uh, we have several curators, each curating a different program, would get to select an artist they wanted to work with on this residency and all work together on the grant and all be part of the grant. And then we were funded right away the first time we applied for this. And we applied through a category there called multidisciplinary presenting. And they've been funding us most years ever since. Jumping back to uh, that week in March, John Oswald was in town from Toronto. He was both working with our staff to install the installation. Right, right. And, which was supposed to open on March 13th. And on March 12th, he was, he had, he had created and was staging uh, a huge choral and organ performance that was taking advantage of the fact that our, you know, that the big space that we frequently use for music also, and also has been totally closed. Yes. Um, Asbury Hall, taking advantage of that space and sort of taking inspiration from that space, he uh, he created this uh, piece for a choir. Oh boy! Which was a combination of a of a an established choir from Toronto called the Element Choir, and local singers. Sure. And this organist who's you know originally uh, from North America, but he is living in Berlin. We flew him from Berlin for this show. We had brought down the choir members from Toronto by bus. Oh, dear. They were all there rehearsing all week, while meanwhile in the gallery, the installation is being put up. And then midweek, we get the word that they're telling people you're going to have to, you know, at least after this weekend, you're going to have to close down everything, right? Of course. But we will have the gallery open, and the gallery open is open now. Yes. And the reason that we could do that is we're now in phase four, and low-density art venues can open as long as they have a plan in place for limited numbers of people at any given time, mask wearing for all visitors as well as the staff who greets them, Every you know, all the surfaces sanitized, and six feet of physical distancing. So we're able to do that for our regular gallery hours, which are 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Tuesday through Friday, and then 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday. So we also have a limited workforce, though. So we have a staff of seven. Uh, so at any given time, only two or three are going to be at work. The other four or five will be continuing to work remotely from home, as they have been for 16 weeks. We've been able to make that work out for us. We've had, we've had weekly staff meetings by Zoom. We've had our board of directors meetings by Zoom. Committee meetings are by Zoom. So. That's worked out really well. How many do you imagine that you can fit into Hall Walls 
under a reduced visitor policy? What's the maximum you should be able to fit in there and still maintain the quote unquote required distancing? The thing about the gallery is that the most crowded the gallery ever is, is on the night of the opening. Yes. And that's super crowded and you want it to be crowded and everybody's socializing and everybody's buying beer and wine at the bar. And it's crowded, it's supposed to be. It's actually, it's more about socializing and kind of getting together and people meeting the artists as it is to see the artwork. It's actually often hard to see the artwork at an opening and you have to come back anyway. And then throughout the run of a show in the gallery, which is about six weeks, we never have a lot of people at any given time. You know, the most we might have, we have a lot of school class visits, you know, like both yes. high school, you know, uh, upperclassmen in high school and college classes, art classes. So obviously those would not be happening, right? And that's when we would have fairly large crowds. So for the most part, we felt we'd be able to open the gallery as soon as we were allowed to, or about a week after we could have done it. We waited to get past the July 4th holiday. And what we don't usually have is a staff person stationed in the lobby outside the entrance of the gallery. So that's one of the measures that we instituted and we have it all set up there so we, you know, whoever's working there, like I work there uh, at least two days a week, I'm probably gonna start working there four days a week. Uh, but when I'm the person who's, who's on duty in this table in the lobby outside the gallery, I can plug in my laptop and charge my phone and I can get work done and also greet people as they come in. You know, everything's very clean. We've got part of this installation, which is video installation, large projected imagery. Uh, on two, the two longest walls of the gallery are, I think at least four or five or six projectors create this effect as if there's crowds of, you know, lines of people and, they, and it fades in and out very slowly. So it changes and the figures are life size. So when you're in there looking at it, the figures are as big as you are mm -hmm. and you're in the midst of this crowd, but it's all virtual. And in fact, when the artist took these photos, they were all done one at a time in his studio. So then he, he put them together as a composite. So it's actually a virtual grouping of what were originally individual portraits that, that the artist shot in his photo studio. Well, that's amazing. Great soundtrack that he created because he's, he's an experimental musician and sound artist as well. There's this long church pew, uh, which comes from the building and, and it's actually 10 feet long. So what we're saying, and that's kind of part of the experience is sitting on that pew and look, watching and because it takes a while for the installation to cycle through. We never, ha I mean, we only have a handful or, you know, a couple of visitors at a time during gallery hours. And that's why, because it's only, our, you know, we only have the one gallery. It's, sure. you know, fairly small. Sure. And so we never, after an opening, have a lot of, you know, like large numbers of people. But the gallery is only one of the, of the facilities that we have uh, at Babeville. And it's only in visual arts, the visual artwork that we exhibit in the gallery is only one part of our program because we're a multidisciplinary uh, contemporary art center. So we have live music, we have uh, film screenings and screenings of video art, we have artist talks and lectures, literary readings of fiction and poetry, uh, and we often make our cinema available for community meetings, classes even meet there, so none of that can happen, right? So below the gallery in the basement level, 
there's two public assembly spaces. One is at the Delaware Avenue end, and that is operated by Bayville, and that's called the Ninth Ward. And that's an intimate uh, music space. They are not able to have any music there. And our cinema, uh, even in phase four, it would not be worth doing any events there. Because, well, we have, we have theater seats, and we have 63 of those. And then we're also able to add uh, these nice stackable gray padded armchairs that we have. And we can bring our capacity in the cinema up to 85. But if we had to cut that in half or a quarter, which is what they're saying, right. 25% or 50, even 50%, and then you'd need distancing, right? So if, even if we were able to have, let's say 30 people, 50%. right. And it wouldn't be worth the trouble to, that you'd have to go through. We couldn't have 30 people six feet apart from each other, right? So then you get to the point where it's not worth it for the few people who could fit in there, right? So yes. so we're in the same boat. And I've talked to a lot of the you know, uh, staffs and directors of, of some of right. the theaters. And they're in tougher shape than we are. Because at least we have our gallery. At least we can have exhibitions. Uh, it's always free, by the way, to go to visit our gallery. So the reason we're open is because that's what we're there for. That's our mission. We want people to see the show, which we think is great. So, so we actually had our performance uh, in Asbury Hall, and only a handful of people showed up because people were scared to. Consequently, we were able to physically distance those few who did show up. And the way that the, the choir performance was being staged already, not because of the shutdown, but they had already designed it this way. The individual singers would be in spaced out in different spaces throughout Asbury Hall on different levels. So they were up in the what used to be the choir loft and over on the balconies and on the sides and in the back. So the performers were, were distanced, which we weren't even thinking about at the time. The audience was small and we distanced them by just having the chairs far apart. But it was you know, a very expensive performance to mount. And, you know, we had a handful of people in the audience. So that was very disappointing. It was also the last event of any kind that has taken place in Asbury Hall or that Hall Walls has done for the public. And then the following week is when we went down, we went into a remote workforce where our seven employees stopped going into work and got set up to work from home. That, But as I said, that has worked out well. So so it's only last week that any of us have started uh, uh, going to the office and we're keeping it down. So out of a staff of seven, we're keeping it to two or three working in the office or in this, you know, at this table outside the gallery. Or in, in the case of our tech director, who's been producing and co-producing a lot of, uh, I mean, post-producing a lot of our online uh, musical programming, he works down in his his booth, which is also the projection booth for the cinema. So if, let's say if we have three people, uh, one is at the front greeting visitors to the gallery, one is in the regular office behind the gallery, and one is down in the basement working in the booth on production of, of virtual programming. And we've really done, I think, more virtual programming than any other organization I'm aware of because we've had virtual film and video series, virtual uh, concerts that we've commissioned and paid the artists for, uh, that they've recorded in their homes, 
also other concerts that are taken from our archives of concerts that we call the Sonic Vault. There's one of those every week. Yes. We have, oh, our, our curator, our gallery curator started right away, uh, early on, started a series of what he calls socially distant studio visits where he connects via Zoom with artists who have exhibited at Hall Walls over the years, which means that they're from Buffalo, they're from all over the country, Canada, international, and he's able to check in with them and ask them. It's sort of like what you're doing with me as a director of an organization. He's checking with them, like, how are you dealing with being an artist who has to work at home, live at home, yes. be quarantined, maybe with your families. So, so we had just begun this new collaboration with a big grant from the Cullen Foundation, who I know also supports Road Less Travel. We submitted an application to the Cullen Foundation for a what they called a collaborative opportunity. And we got a big multi-year grant to work with the Historic Colored Musicians Club. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, and we were all ready to launch that. And the first concert was going to be uh, Joseph Daly's Tuba Trio on March 26th, canceled. And then uh, Nicole Mitchell, Black Earth Ensemble, a special Earth Day concert in Asbury Hall, canceled. Here in Now, which is a great uh, string trio, all women of color, May 21st, canceled. And the last one was going to be Heroes Are Gang Leaders, which is just more of a kind of a mixture of music and hip-hop and poetry. And that was going to be in the uh, in the Ninth Ward, and that had to be, I shouldn't say canceled. Those, those dates had to be canceled. So, Ed, if I could just ask you a quick question. So it sounds to me like everything that you're and exactly, this is exactly what I was looking for, is because people don't realize the domino effect of all of these things yes. happening. And one of the reasons why we're doing this is because all of these cultural institutions like yourself have stories similar to this, where there are all, yep. and all these concerts are, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are these are your main income generating events as well. Yes. It, you know, the free a gallery exhibition is one thing, yeah. but all these things that you've had to cancel were income gen generating. Absolutely. So, and presumably, and you can answer this now, yeah. these are all canceled, but more like postponed. We're still looking forward to hopefully rescheduling them at some point. Yeah. So the earliest of the concerts that we postponed is scheduled for October. And that's still for us kind of tentative. Sure. But we're hoping that it will be October. The concert from, let's see, May 21st is postponed to February. And that trio uh, here in now, H-E-A-R, the word in, and then now, that's going to be in Asbury Hall. And so we had to book that date. And uh, we're hoping that happens. So, yeah, these are all going to be rescheduled. But it's very up in the air when that happens. Was the financial hit particularly crippling? Yes. You know, we had this Cullen grant, right, which was really, yes. it was a lot, you know, it was a good size grant and it was going to cover our costs of these expensive concerts that we're doing in partnership with the Colored Musicians Club. And we haven't incurred those costs, right? So that's still money in the bank. Right. But, you know, the budget overall, the working budget included a good amount of uh, admissions revenue, more than we usually count on, you know, for our normal concerts, which mostly take place in the cinema, right? Mm -hmm. So because we were going to doing, we were doing so many of these, 
uh, in Asbury Hall and in partnership with another organization. And you know, part of what we wrote into our grant to the Cohen Foundation was this partnership, the synergy between the two organizations, the additional money we, we put into the budget for promotion and advertising that we don't usually have to work with with music, all of that and the quality you know, of these acts we're bringing in, uh, we were really counting on a good amount of ticket revenue, like a big, you know, to really kind of like go to another level with ticket revenue for music. Yes, yes. And that's all on hold now. In the meantime, are you incurring costs? Are there things that have to be maintained? I mean, the, the video library, things like that yeah. oh, need yeah, yeah. to be maintained yeah, and, yeah. and kept temperature controlled and so well, on? Our, one of our big costs is our monthly rent. Of course. it's We pay rent to Babeville, and it's a pretty good amount. We only have about 5,000 square feet there that's ours, totally under our control. Yes. But then part of our moving there had to do with ha our having access over and above that to the lobby outside the gallery, because that's where openings happen, really more in the lobby than in the gallery itself. That's where the bar is for an opening. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, we're able to use uh, Asbury Hall whenever we need to. We just need to book the date, but mm -hmm. we're able to use that without any additional charge. Oh. We get that for free. It kind of comes with the deal, right? That's nice. And I'm sure they're, they're incurring incredible costs to maintain that building. I remember not so long ago when they were just it was about to fall down and they were incurring costs then so th the maintenance of it at this point has has to be significant well it's amazing you know all of that all of that re restoration and renovation and adaptation you know adaptive reuse that all took place you know pretty much between 2003 and 2007 they opened in 2007 and they started doing concerts in Asbury Hall in 2007 so it's all you know, it's hard to believe but it's already 13 to 17 years since all of those expenses were incurred. They have no money coming in, and our rent is one of the few revenue streams they have. The rent we pay is rent that they're taking in. So, But the big thing that impacted us this summer was two things. Our auction, or a little bit before the summer, our big annual auction was scheduled for May 28th. So, of course, that had to be postponed. And we've been doing that since 2009. And not every year, but most years lately. And I looked at I looked at the figures, and over an eleven year period, we've averaged fifty two thousand, you know, gross from those events. Wow! Uh, each year, what a loss. Some years less, some years a lot more. So that's a big hole in our income. Our fiscal year ends August thirty first. So there's definitely going to big be a big hole in our income for this fiscal year just from the auction itself. Uh, more than 10% of our income. Then we have the drawing rally, which we do we do in Asbury Hall, and is always a really crowded event and a really fun event. Also, now it's going to be online. Yeah. So we did the one. We did the. They're always at the end of February, like the last Wednesday of February, and the last Wednesday of July. So we got the February one in just in time. I mean, like literally two weeks before everything closed out. Right. And it was very crowded and the most successful one we ever had. So we got that in just under the wire. And then this one, we decided rather than postpone it, because we hope to do the February one in February and kind of keep to the schedule. Sure. Our staff and our special events committee of our board of directors have been meeting every week, and they've come up with a fantastic way of doing it online, using Zoom, but it's not going to be live. Our curator, John Massier, has been 
one by one, working with the artists who are drawing from their homes, but they're still limited to 45 minutes to finish a drawing, which is how it works when we do it right, live. Right. And, and they're recording it, and then they're producing the drawings, which are real, those are not virtual, and then we're gonna launch that online. Again, people will be watching video uh, recordings of the artists making the drawings. Yes. But they will be watching that, and they can start bidding, but the bidding will not conclude that night. The bidding will go on for a whole week. Now, Ed, do you have a massive email? Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. because people will learn. I mean, people aren't going to learn about this, certainly just from this podcast. How do you get the word out on this? It'll, I'm sure it'll be in, the, in, in all of the media. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be on Facebook. I'm yes. sure it'll be on Instagram and so well, on. I, I just got interviewed sort of like I'm, you're interviewing me now. I got interviewed by WBFO. Mm -hmm. And we talked for about 20 minutes. And then they played little sound bites throughout the day. Nice. So that was really great. I think a lot of people heard about it then, both the opening of the gallery and the drawing rally. Buffalo Spree is our major sponsor for the drawing rally. And we have some business sponsors from Five Points. Uh, well, Hodson Russ, the law firm, has always been a sponsor of both the drawing rallies and the auction. And they still have come through and, and uh, Paradise Wine at... Uh, at Five Points and also Remedy House are gonna do a special thing where certain purchases, 20% is gonna to go to the drawing rally so that people can get cocktails or a bottle of wine and bring it home and then watch the drawing rally on the 29th. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, drink at home and, and start <laughs> bidding. We have it set up to be as close as possible to the experience of a drawing rally in Asbury Hall as you can get on Zoom. So I'm hoping that that'll go well. We'll see. Uh, usually we have two rounds of artists drawing, 18 in round one and 18 in round two. So we have 36 artists. So this time I think we have just a, maybe 22 artists, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so not quite as many, uh, but you know, we hope that that will be a that'll, that's still happening virtually and will be a success. And then we hope that by December 3rd, we'll be able to have the big auction in Asbury Hall. And we didn't want to go any later than that because we don't want to get too close to the holidays. But we didn't want to go earlier than that because everything's too iffy. So we Very think, much we think so, yes. December 3rd's you know, a pretty good date right now. And if we find out that we're going to have to change that, we'll have to change it later. But we're working towards that date now. As I said, this show that's up, John Oswald's, it's called Still Nessence, kind of a combination of stillness and essence. That's going to run in the gallery through August 28th. So that'll actually have a full, a full six-week run with the gallery open. And for the first couple months, we had it one wall of it, just one of the two walls, streaming live 24 hours a day, seven days a week on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. But now people can see it for free. We also have another project where people can go to a specially constructed mailbox built by artist Kyle Butler. Uh, and this was curated by our curatorial assistant, Rebecca Wing, where she, she curated, selected, commissioned artists to create postcard art. And we're, we're printing a small edition of 125 of each artist's image. And each week we're going to introduce a new one and you can go to a mailbox that's outside hall walls whether hall walls is open or not and you can take one for free 
And you can also put a piece of mail art into a mail slot that's built into the bottom of the wow. mailbox. So we just, we just launched that on Saturday with a, a beautiful artwork by Millie Chen, who's an art professor at UB. And we've got all the artists lined up. So each Saturday, there'll be a new one and people can go down and take a free postcard and collect the whole set. We're excited about that. So, we've, so our, our staff has been working. We were able to get a Paycheck Protection Program loan. Yes, yes. Good. That got us through April and April, May and June, pretty much. Uh, and therefore, we never had to lay off staff. Oh, that's our, terrific. Yeah, our staff has been working, and what they've been working on is, you know, it's grant writing season, it's final report season for grants, but mostly they, they I've been working on those things, uh, but what they've been working on is this virtual programming. And I, I think I'm very proud of them because I think they've been really, they've shown a lot of ingenuity, and they've been very inventive and uh, and creative, which is what you want, you know, always for the staff of an arts organization to be, and they are. Uh, and by the way, uh, the majority of our staff are working artists, mm -hmm. right? So for example, well, Polly used to be our, Polly Little used to be our uh, development director and uh, bookkeeper, but now she's doing, she's still doing the books, but she's semi-retired and working one day a week. Uh, she's still doing the financials with me. She's also a painter, so one of the reasons she, you know, she's taken the time off to paint. Steve Bachkowski, who is our music director, is also a working musician, so uh, and also a teaching artist for young audiences, right? So, oh, Rebecca Wing, who is our curatorial assistant, I said put together the postcards. It's called Postcards on the Edge. She was also teaching art at Buffalo Sam, right? So, and our tech director, who's really a musician. Uh, composer. He had a, multiple teaching jobs at different colleges and universities that he teaches as an adjunct. And, you know, so they all have other gigs related to teaching or to actually, you know, in, in Steve's case, performing music. And uh, they've all lost those opportunities. So it was really important for me to keep them all working, not only because they're my staff and my employees and I feel responsible for them, but they're also artists because we're an artist-run center, and they were all impacted as artists by everything shutting down. So I'm happy we we're able to do that. You know, we've received some from some generous foundation support. We ended up in, I guess it was April, concluding our annual campaign, which had started at you know at the end of it's 2019. So it was our it's our 2019-2020 annual campaign. And we had kind of slowed down and looked like we weren't going to make our goal of 30000 And at the very end, we did. Good for you. That helped get us through the beginning. Then the Paycheck, you know, Paycheck Protection Program came through. We expended all those funds, which means we'll get that loan forgiven. Yes. A family foundation that wants to be anonymous, but they, fund, they give us some funding every summer. And they did. They came through. And so, you know, our county funding which, you know, the second payment of that comes in July. And we're worried about the impact that all of these costs of the pandemic were having at Erie County. Of course. But they were able to at least make sure that all the organizations got their second payment of their 2020 funding. Mm -hmm. So now what we're looking at is the possibility of cuts that Erie County might have to make in 2021. And, you know, it won't be anything like when Chris Collins cut it. 
if Mark Polonkars has to cut or reduce funding, he will be doing it reluctantly. He won't be doing it lightly. I'm sure he will. Because he's so supportive. And I've been writing a lot of grants and some successful and some not successful, but we're trying everything we can. Our board has been really super supportive. Well, Ed, I, I have one last question for you. Okay. Because you've answered everything I, I I didn't even I didn't even get a chance to ask but I was going to ask about the I'm like the, the point nine and I was no no okay. but, but you covered everything I wanted but there's one question okay uh, that uh, you've already suggested it I think that Hallwells is an incredible unique resource can you give me like a one minute commercial for the value of Hallwells in our community we get a lot of support from the artists uh in the community and the artists recognize the importance of hall walls and when i say artists i mean visual artists i mean musicians i mean writers i mean filmmakers all the all the disciplines we've been around a long time we have an illustrious history in terms of of having an impact on art history of the u.s and of the world through the artists who were involved in the early days and we've we've continued that and we've just had, you know, over the years, we've had so many artists uh, early in their careers where they had important early exhibitions that led to illustrious careers, musicians of very high caliber from all over the world, writers uh, of very high caliber from all over the world, filmmakers uh, appearing in person to present their work who are now very famous. And that's part of our legacy. But, you know, now in the present, we're really here for the artists, the young artists, who uh, are doing amazing work here now. I think this is, you know, I think there was kind of a golden age in the 70s when Hall Walls started and Just Buffalo Literary Center started SEPA, and uh, UB had the, creative, <coughs> had the Creative Associates, and Art Park had a, had a lot of amazing programming, and I think we're in another golden age right now, where we actually have artists and musicians and writers who are you know, they come here to go to art school and then they don't leave. You know, many times they stay. And we have great new fa young faculty members in the art departments of, of the colleges and universities. Every, all of them are impacted now, obviously. Sure. But Hall Walls, I think, is an important institution for artists. That's recognized by them. And that's why they're so generous with, you know, participating in the drawing rally, donating work to the auction, doing these postcards. We're paying them a small stipend for doing the postcards. Uh, we're paying artists something to do these uh, live musical performances from their homes. We're trying to pay artists as much as we can. But we, you know, we think we serve artists and artists know that we serve them and, and uh, audiences who are interested in, you know, the newest uh, art, what's happening in film and video today and visual arts today in writing and in, uh, and in new music. Know that Hall Walls is a place to find it early and you might be seeing something that you, you don't even know now how important it is, but our history has proven that things that you know, Hall Walls presented or supported early on have gone, in, have gone on to have a huge uh, impact uh, on the art world. Uh, and for that to happen in Buffalo, and not just you know in New York City or Los Angeles or Chicago, but to have the art worlds of those places, especially New York City, influenced by what happens here in Buffalo, we're very proud of that legacy. Cutting edge, non-traditional, becomes mainstream, and Buffalo is often a starting point. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and that's been true not just around Hall Walls, but 
you know, Department of Media Study, Media Study Buffalo, Creative Associates, Albright Knox, SEPA, you know, so many over the years. And I think artists all over the world recognize the importance of Buffalo. You know, what Creative Associates at UB used to bring people like John Cage and Merce Cunningham and Julius Eastman, who actually, you know, was from Buffalo and died in Buffalo also. You know, and of course, Hall Walls itself, Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, Charlie Clough, all part of the beginnings of Hall Walls. And, and they all are still supportive. And so we're very grateful for that, too. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm going to send you a link for this. It's right. I already, I already subscribed to your podcast. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. I'm, of a, you. I'm a big podcast person. <laughs> uh, I usually subscribe just using the you know, the podcast app on my iPhone. So do I, so do I. And so I'm, you're already, you're already on there. Well, just in case you want to pass it on to anybody. If, oh, I will. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. I appreciate it. Fascinating information. It just amazes me. The, the human mind and its adaptability, how we've been able to create new things. Yeah. And of course, Hallwells would be at the forefront of that. How we'd be able to create new things out of this catastrophe that we've all suffered through for the past four months yes i'm constantly amazed by it and uh, and i appreciated yeah. hearing all about it from you yeah, so the challenges are not over i really feel no no i mean I, I i couldn't believe when i you know when i read what road less traveled having to postpone basically its whole the whole season 2021 season yep. to 21 22 i mean that's a long time and and at the time when scott told me about that many of us thought Boy, that's awfully extreme. Do you think you have to do that? Yeah. And now it's turning out to be prescient. Yeah. That it's probably what many are going to do. I think so. You have a good day, Ed. It was wonderful meeting you. I'll see you at Hallwells. I hope so. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Yes, if I had to go back now, I'd be on Amazon looking for a hazmat suit. Oh, never mind. So Ed Cardoni, I'll tell you, if I've learned one thing from this podcast, and I've learned a lot of things, if I've learned one thing, it's that when this whole pandemic ends, I have to get out to a lot more places. I have been living a sheltered life. I need to go to Hall Walls. I need to go check out all of the Olmstead parks. I need to go to the History Museum and the Science Museum. I need to get out of the house. And did you recognize the mystery guest? If you know theater in Buffalo, you know that that's a young lady who showed up out of nowhere from way out west. And now she is one of the most popular, the most cast actors in Buffalo. The lovely and talented Alex Malaise. Thank you, Alex, dear friend. And I think you should be the next mystery guest here on our LTP's Off-Road. All you need to do is record a message. Don't mention your name. Record it on your phone. Something very simple. You don't have to do anything fancy. And then just email it to me at rltpoffroad at gmail.com. And maybe you will be the next mystery guest. And you don't even have to be a friend of mine. You could just be, you could be my evil nemesis and that would be a lot of fun, too. So we'll see you in a couple of weeks. I hope you're staying safe and sane out there. I know the virus is still out there, and in some places in this country, it is having a field day. So far, we've been a little luckier. Things are staying down, and that means we have to continue to be vigilant. So everybody, stay safe, stay sane, 
And I will be back in a couple of weeks with another edition of RLTP's Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Pete Pomisano.